0: In Alabama, as the conventional wisdom goes, there are two types of people. People who root for Auburn and people who root for the University of Alabama. And this is a a really intense rivalry. If you're not into college sports, it's going to sound really strange to you. But, um, I mean, it's really intense. And you hang flags on the front of your house and it identifies who you are and who you don't like and who can't come to your house and who you'll throw eggs at. And that's the adults, and then the teenagers do other things too, of course. There, there was a book written about it called Rammer, Jammer, Yellow Hammer. It's on the New York Times bestseller. It's, it's crazy stuff. Back in January of this year, there was a 62-year-old man, and he took this rivalry so seriously that he poisoned these two oak trees at, a, at Auburn. That are, These oak trees are a really central part of the Auburn Um, culture. You get your picture taken under them. They celebrate their victories under these trees. They're over 130 years old. He's 62 years old. He's a grown man. And he gets so caught up in the rivalry, he goes and he poisons them. He kills these trees. Um, So that's a rivalry. Well, 2,000 years ago, in the Mediterranean city of Corinth, there was a church. And this is the church that this passage Ellie just read. Thanks, Ellie, wherever you are thanks for reading, that Ellie just read to us. And this church was filled with rivalries, and they were just as um, involved as this 62-year-old man in Alabama was. Um, And and maybe for you, again, I've said it before, we've been seeing this over the past several weeks, if it's not college football that draws out of you um, prejudice and rivalry, maybe for you it's political parties and, and how you can't even... A bear to listen to somebody in the other political party without having certain visceral reactions coming up inside of you, or, or maybe for you it 's people who are committed to reducing their carbon footprint and SUV drivers but for for this church in Corinth, it was those types of Um, divisions that mattered to them. But their divisions weren't based on your view of ecology or your view of the role of government in the life of people. Their divisions were based on their favorite pastor, their favorite minister, their favorite leader. And they had these deep loyalties to to whatever particular pastor that they liked. They were so deep that they had a hard time being around people who had loyalty to another pastor. And they would do all sorts of silly things, and they would fight, and they would argue, and it was tearing this church apart. So the Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to these Christians in Corinth, and like a doctor, he's prescribing a bill of health. He's prescribing how this church can get healing and move forward. And for several weeks now, we've been seeing that at the heart of his prescription, is that this church has to sort out who Jesus is, who the real Jesus is. Because in that day, just like in our day, there are lots of people who claim the name of Jesus, but it's not the, the Jesus that is identified in Scripture. It's a Jesus that's their homeboy or whatever, and you can fill him in with your own favorite virtues. So Paul was saying, look, in order to be a healthy church, in order to stop your fighting, you've got to sort out who the real Jesus is. You've got to have unity around this real Jesus. Secondly, um, we've seen over the past several weeks that he said, another part of your problem is that you have a misunderstanding of church leadership. And in order to be a healthy church that's not fighting all the time, this particular church in Corinth needed to sort out what the role of church leadership was. Now... This Sunday in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul points out a third issue, a third kind of prescription that he gives to this church to get their act together. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, first of all, we see once again something we saw several weeks ago in the very first part of the letter, and it's this. The church is not a building, and the church is not an institution. The church is a community of people in a particular location. In fact, you can be a church without a building. And you can be a church without an institution. A church is a particular group of people that have a certain identity in a particular area. Now, churches use buildings and they form institutions. And all of those things can be really good or they can be really bad. But they're not the church. Nevertheless, when Paul writes, he's saying, you are God's temple. Not that building you meet in. You are. He's not talking about a a building. He's talking about a group of people. Now, not only is a church not a building, but it's also not an individual. In verse 16, the verb that he uses, this was originally written in Greek, and in Greek, verbs have tenses, and verbs also have either, they're either singular or plural. The verb in verse 16 is a plural verb, and the pronoun is plural. So in the Greek language, the word you, y-o-u, the second person plural, Pronoun. It was spelled differently when it was a singular pronoun. When it was, I was talking to Shea and I said you, or when I was talking to... Now, in the South, we have a second person plural pronoun. It's y'all. Now, whoever translated this part of the Bible, they don't know about that yet, but we're, we're praying for their sanctification and salvation. So, really, if you could translate this in a very accurate way, y'all are the temple of God, and God's spirit dwells in y'all. In other words, it's not that any individual is the temple of God. Now, he actually says that's the case later in chapter 6. He's talking to individuals, and he says, as an individual, you have God's spirit dwelling in you, so be careful when you sin because there's implications of that. But here he's not talking about that. Here he's saying it is the gathered church. It is the group of people together that are the temple of God. Now, this is fundamental to the nature of the church. We. The church of the incarnation. We are the residents. We are the house. We are the residence of God's spirit. That's mind-boggling. And Look at the phrase at the very beginning of verse 16. Do you not know? Now, if you can read Greek, when you're reading this, this is like writing as hard as he can on the papyrus, like scratching through the paper, exclamation mark, highlighting. These are really intense words that Paul is writing here. He's saying, holy cow, how can you miss this? you got to be kidding me that you're missing this. And it's not just a passionate phrase. He actually uses that little combination of words, do you not know, ten times in this letter. And every time he uses it in the letter, he's talking about something that is foundational, something that is fundamental, it's axiomatic, it's, it's basic to what it means to be a Christian. It's a, it's a cardinal truth, a non-negotiable issue. He, he's saying, don't you know? He, he's saying, this is key. This is at the heart of Christianity. And what is this basic truth, this fundamental truth that the Corinthians are missing? It's that the church, the group, not any little division of the church, but the group as a whole is God's temple in the community where God has placed it. Now let's drill down into this for a moment. It's important to know and to use your imagination here Corinth is filled with temples. Huge, glorious temples with all kinds of marble and ornate structures. Temples that when you walk by them, they overwhelm your senses. And he's writing to this scrappy, arguing, squabbling little group of people. And he says, you know all those buildings that that blow you away in their aesthetic beauty and in their assault on the senses? They're imposter temples. You. You are the temple of the living God. There is no other real temple in this town. Now, again, like we saw a number of weeks ago, even though this church is so messed up, it's arguing and fighting and it's, it's all over the map. It's filled with all sorts of behavior that is profoundly unchristian. Paul still says, You are the temple. Because being the temple of God doesn't have anything to do with us. It's the fact that God has chosen to make his residence on earth local churches. That's God's choice. That's God's gig. Now, on another level, it's equally mind-boggling. Paul was a Jew. And when he wrote to the Christians in Corinth the temple of Judaism in Jerusalem was still standing. And for Paul, like all other Jews of his time, he had been raised to believe that that temple was the dwelling place of the one true living God. Now, of course, they fully understand understood that the God who created everything could not be contained by a building. They didn't make that mistake. But over and over again, God demonstrated to them that he chose to have his presence concentrated in the one temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And now Paul is saying to the squabbling group of non-Jews, things have changed. No longer... Is that the place where God's presence is concentrated? You are. Now, this is, this is earth-shattering stuff for Paul to be saying this. In fact, when a guy named Stephen said this in Jerusalem a few years before this, the religious leaders picked up rocks and threw them at him until they killed him by what's called stoning. Paul is saying a monumental shift has occurred in the way God relates to this world. God had chosen for, for centuries to concentrate his presence in one place, but now he's dispersed himself, his presence, throughout this earth by concentrating his presence in local churches. You yourselves are the temple of God. Now look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now the point Paul makes here is that if the church is the dwelling place of God, then surely God will deal severely with those who corrupt and damage the local church. So Paul is saying, those of you in this church that are dividing the church, you are offending God. And you are inviting and calling down God's judgment on you. Because God's temple is holy. Now, that word holy, it carries two meanings. Half of what it means, we'll deal with the other half in a bit. But half of what holy here means, he's picking it up from the Old Testament when... Israel had a temple, and there were certain utensils that you could find anywhere in Israel. But some of them, God said, these are holy. And it didn't mean they're morally pure. They were just like everything else in their essence. But it meant, God said, use them only for my temple. Holy, half of what it means, is that it belongs to God... Set apart for God's purpose. You can't go using these utensils for what you want because God has a unique claim on them. He says, they belong to me. So when Paul says here, don't go messing with the temple of God. Don't go messing with the local church because it's holy. Part of what he means is it belongs to God. You don't walk into somebody else's garage and take their tools. You don't walk into somebody else's house and start rearranging the walls. You don't walk into somebody else's family and lay claim to things. The church belongs to God. When you mess with it, you're messing with his residence. It belongs to him. He's saying, look, when you turn the church into a playground for your own agendas, the stakes are high. God has chosen to be present in the world in the group of people that we call a church. And this is no light matter. Those who are damaging the church are interfering with God's dwelling place. And they will experience judgment. So that's what God was saying to the Christians in Corinth 2,000 years ago. And it's scripture. It's from God through the Apostle Paul to this very specific church that had some very specific, specific problems 2,000 years ago. And we're not that church. And I'm grateful that we're not that church. I mean, we are blessed with an incredible unity and harmony in our church at this point in time. I'm not saying that things are perfect. But by the grace of God, we are not struggling with those issues. And yet, this is God's word. And it's God's word to us. And so we need to listen for what God is saying to us through his word. First of all, God is reminding us that this church is his project, not ours. And there's a very real threat we face. You see, whenever you come to a church, especially when it's just getting started and you're so excited, you find a church, finally, that looks like the kind of church you've always wanted to have. So finally you found this church that's doing this right or that. We can inadvertently, by accident, project our plans onto a church. And none of us can know where this train is headed. This is God's project. We cannot know what this is going to look like in a year or in two years or in three years. And so we've all got our places in this church where we're serving the church, where we're working for the church, where we're trying to bring our gifts to the church. But we need to know that whenever we're serving the church and we're working on something we really love, we need to know it's just a chore assigned to us by God and He can change our assignment at any moment. He can take you out of something you value so much and put somebody else there. That's what he did with Paul. Paul said earlier, I planted it. And then God took me away and he brought Apollos in. And Apollos watered. Paul was there for 18 months. And then God said, leave. I I want Apollos to come in. Look, we can't lay claim to this thing. We've got to hold this church with an open hand. And we've got to let it go where God wants to take it. And we've also got to be realistic that it might not be anywhere on our radar where God wants to take this church. It belongs to God. It's His project. If we try to control this church, we are in danger of setting ourselves against God. And that is a dangerous place to be. Now, this brings up a second point. (laughs) We cannot overlook the threat in this passage that God makes. You know, we like to talk about the grace of God and the soft side of God and the safe side of God. The God that we can run into his arms, you know, no matter what we, how bad we've messed up. The God that Jesus talks about in in the story of the prodigal son, the wedding father. When the son who has been just totally messing up, comes running home and he goes to apologize to the father. And the father interrupts him and says, don't even worry about that. I love you. And he throws a huge party. We love that side of God. But there is also a wrathful side of God. And it comes out clearly in this passage. It is really dangerous to mess with God's residence. So it's so important that this unity, this harmony that we are enjoying and experiencing now, it is so important that we know our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion. He will try to devour us. And one way that uh, the devil devours churches is he gets people to set themselves against God. Because if he can get you to do that, then God himself will destroy you. That's what this passage says. I, I mean, here's a church that is fighting and squabbling. And we see that God says, I will not tolerate your pride and your divisiveness. This is the strongest warning in all of the Bible against those who would take the church lightly and destroy it. Now, it's important at this point to know that through in this whole letter... There are two ways that people can destroy a church. The first is through actions that tear at the unity of the church. That's the immediate context of these verses. The bitterness that can come out of some people that ends up reducing a church to a group of disconnected factions. The type of person who must criticize. Who cannot bear to have their opinion contradicted. The person who must prove that they are right and whoever disagrees with them must be wrong. The person who is not humble enough to sit with people but can only talk down to people. This person who insists that whoever disagrees with them is wrong. That's what we're dealing with here. And God will harm you if you act like that in a church. But in this book, there's another way, there's another example that comes up later of how a church is harmed. And we'll see it over the next several weeks. It's when we see that a church, instead of having a real and godly unity, they have a false and cowardly unity. See, you can elevate unity to trump everything. And that is not the case in this book. Because the example is Paul himself is writing to them and saying, I'm stirring the pot. I mean, Paul is very provocative. See, he's not laying down and saying, let's just get along. Please get along. Please get along. Stop arguing with each other. He's saying, no, do the right thing. And there's a little bit later in this letter where we see that There's somebody who is involved in a terrible sin. A terrible sin. And Paul says you've got to kick them out of the church because they refuse to repent of that sin. You see, in other words, you can't use this teaching on unity to become some virtue that trumps everything. There is a true godly unity and there is a false and cowardly unity. The kind of unity that occurs when people refuse to stand up. And take sin seriously. Now it takes wisdom. To navigate these two extremes. But still we've got to honestly admit. This is what's going on here. The word destroy in verse 17. It's a unique word in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's hardly ever used. I don't even know of another place. In fact that it's used. The Greek word in the New, of, of God's judgment. It's got two meanings. In fact some of your Bibles probably translate. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 17. They probably translate this word ...differently within the same verse. Some of your Bibles might translate it as corrupt one time and destroy another time. The word actually means both to corrupt and to destroy. What's going on here is the idea that there are people... ...who destroy a church by corrupting its unity... ...either through being divisive or between tolerating sin... They, they corrupt what is holy and what is good. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that in corrupting the church, there comes a point where the corruption crosses the line from corruption into destroying the church. And when you cross this line, God will destroy you. See, right, in verses 10 through 15 of chapter 3, he said there's two kinds of builders. Those who build with gold, gold silver and precious stones, those who build with wood, hay, and stubble. He said, you can build the church in a foolish way so that it's not really wise. And he says, there you'll pass through the fire. What's this in verse 15? You'll pass through the fire. You'll be judged, but you won't be destroyed. In fact, he says, you will be saved just barely. But then in 16, he ratchets it it up a notch, notch, and he says, look, none of you are guilty of this yet. You are corrupting the church. There is a fine line between corruption and destruction. And when you cross that line, God will destroy you. Yikes! So whether someone is corrupting the unity of the church through being negative and bitter, or they're corrupting the unity of the church by not taking sin seriously enough, either route is dangerous. And the result... Scares us. We don't even like to think about it. But let's go back to verse 16. You are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in you. Now here's another thing I think God is saying to our church this morning. It's this. The reason that it is so good to be in this church right now. is because God's spirit dwells here not because of anybody's particular gift set. What a positive thing. This is the reason that when we show up together and worship God together, this is the reason that so many of you are talking to me about how your life is changing. It's because God's Spirit dwells in us collectively. So when we get together, when we gather together and worship God, now part of what this means is that the presence of God it's transformative. I was reading a book this past week and the guy said presence is a delicious word. Because it points to one of our truly great gifts. Nothing else can take the place of presence. Not gifts, not telephone calls, not pictures, not mementos, nothing. Ask the person who has lost a lifelong mate what they miss the most. And the answer is invariably presence. When we are ill, we don't need soothing words nearly as much as we need loved ones to be present. What makes games and walks and concerts and outings and myriad other things, what makes them so pleasurable? Presence. You see, part of what is great about our church is this is the residence of God. And it's not just our church. It's all of the other Local, genuine churches in this area. If you don't have a church that you are committed to and faithfully gathering with that church week after week, then find a church. Because there is a way that God is present to you in worship that He chooses not to be present in any other way. He could have, but He doesn't. Now, a fourth issue for our church, since the spirit of God is present in our midst. Then we must learn to live lives that are holy. And it takes learning to do that. We must learn to live lives that are holy. Look closely at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy And you are that temple. Remember, I said holy has two meanings. One is this belongs to God, don't go taking it for yourself. The other is pure, morally pure. We see in chapter 5, I told you about this earlier, there was a man in the church who was involved in an incestuous relationship. He was having an affair with what appears to be his mother in law or his stepmother or something. And the fact that the church is where the spirit of a holy God dwells, Paul says, means you've got to deal with that. Not because you're better than other people, but because of the greater reality of the presence of a holy God. Now look, when we realize that the nature of our church is that our church is a temple of God, we see that any time we are playing with forces that threaten the holiness of God's temple, we are in effect pitting ourselves against the Holy Spirit. And we as a church must learn to vigorously and wisely pursue holiness. Finally, one last thing. It is foolish to limit the Spirit of God to holiness, to purity. In other words, as we as a church reflect on the fact that a church is the temple of God, and the way God is present to a church, it says here, is by His Spirit, then we as a church must be open to manifestations ...of God's Spirit. Now in chapters 12 and 13 and 14 of this same letter... ...we see that the Corinthians have a serious problem with manifestations of the Spirit. They love it. They like flopping around and jumping around and speaking in tongues... ...and doing all kinds of stuff that you would look funny... ...if you tried to do it in this room this morning. And they were gaga goo goo over all of this stuff. But for now... It's important for us to know that problematical manifestations of the Spirit are better than no manifestations of the Spirit. And that's important for our church. The truth is that too often in America, we can be so rigid, so held together, that we can squeeze out the life of the Spirit from a church. The life of the Spirit. Too often in America, the church has married itself to the rationalism, the cold rationalism of modernity. So we rule out the possibility. We rule out the probability of supernatural things. There's a lot of Christians in America <laughs> that if they were as critical of supernatural things happening in the Bible as they are of critic, critical of supernatural things happening in the Pentecostal church down the street, then nothing in the Bible would even be real. I mean, for goodness sake, we believe God became human and rose from the dead. You can't get weirder than that. So why are we trying to protect ourselves by not being weird on something else? We're children of the Enlightenment. This is hard for us. We've been indoctrinated with a scientific worldview. There's always a reasonable, natural explanation. There's cause and effect. And people who believe in demons and witchcraft, these people are pre-modern. They're pre-scientific. And we get embarrassed by all the emotional excess of more charismatic churches. And we don't want people who we respect to lose respect for us. We don't want to lose status in a community. We don't... People whose opinion we cherish... To think that we're strange. We don't want to be labeled weird. So this fact is hard for us. Now let me give a couple of disclaimers. First of all, I'm not saying that the power of God is found only in supernatural kind of experiences. God's power operates in a number of ways. In fact, in another letter that Paul wrote, God teaches us that the Spirit is responsible not only for miracles, but He's also responsible for peace and joy and orderliness, and hope, and things like that. So I'm not trying to reduce the Spirit of God to that kind of thing. I'm I'm also not advocating some sensationalistic approach. I'm not saying that the gift of healing, for example, is more essential than the gift of teaching, or leadership, or mercy. And I'm not advocating triumphalism. Triumphalism is when you start to think that if you've got enough faith, God's power will heal you. If you've got enough faith, you will have success and victory in every area of your life. Scripture clearly teaches that there is a mystery here. Paul died. Right. Apparently he had faith and he bit the bullet. And and lots of other people's Jesus died. Not only that, he was murdered. Not only that, he was tortured. Okay, so I'm not trying to advocate some sort of triumphalism here. There is a mystery. There's this idea that you can have the fullness of the joy and the presence and the power of the Spirit in the midst of suffering. And sometimes God chooses to lead us through suffering instead of away from it. I'm not trying to wipe that out. But I am saying that when you look at the Bible and you look at the history of the church and when you look at the majority of churches in the world today, We are abnormal, Church of the Incarnation. The majority of Christians in the world today and the majority of churches in the world today and throughout history and throughout the Bible, for them, the supernatural power of God was a part of ordinary living. Life for them was naturally supernatural, not exceptionally on occasion when you desperately need it. And we as a church need to grow in this area. So let me wrap up by giving us two practical suggestions. First, if you'll look at James, if you've got your Bible, turn to the right a few pages and find James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him take an aspirin. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray of him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now look. Let's believe it or tear it out of our Bible. If you have a spiritual or physical or financial need... Ask the church to lay hands on you and anoint you with oil and ask God to heal you. Yes, that would be weird. But really now, is that weirder than somebody rising up from the dead? Is that weirder than a virgin teenager getting pregnant with the God of this universe? Is it weirder than any other host of issues we believe? No, it's not. It's not. If you're sick and you're at home, call on us. We'll come to your house and anoint you with oil. And the next time you're in a small group and y'all are sharing prayer requests, if somebody's sick, find some Crisco, put it on their forehead, lay hands on them, and ask God to heal them. One other thing. Naturally supernatural. That's what, for most Christians, most of the history of the church and most of the world right now have found to be true. In your small groups, and when you're gathering together with other Christians and you pray, begin to think about prayer not just as you talking to God, but God talking back. And, and, and imagine that God delights in speaking to His children through His children. And when you get finished praying, ask each other, ''Did God say anything to anybody?'' Now look, it might be last night's pizza, you might be confused, it might be just some weird mood you got, or a hobby horse that you like to ride. But it might not be. It might be the voice of the living God. God delights in speaking to his children through his children. We've got to cultivate an environment where we are open to the Spirit of God manifesting himself. Now look, every time God speaks through prophecy or something like that in the Bible, there's always accompanied by the gift of discernment. We don't put the same level of authority in something that Alec says God said to him as we do in what the Bible says. Alec is not infallible, the Bible is. But God is not dead. And He's not stopped speaking. And I believe with all of my heart, God will speak to people in the way they're available. Why would God talk to me in Russian? I wouldn't know what He said. You know why God doesn't speak to a lot of us in dreams? Because we wouldn't know it was God, and we would ignore it like it wasn't God. I've got a friend, he's a Pentecostal from South Africa, when he needs to hear from God. no, I was raised a Baptist. I'm a good Baptist. If I need to hear from God, I read the Bible. He... If he needs to hear from God, no lie, he takes a nap. I've been around him, he said, Aubrey, I've got to hear from God. I'm like, well, let's read the Bible. He says, no, I'm going to sleep. Because he believes God speaks in dreams. And guess what he does? God's not going to speak to Zoe and and Zulu because it would be a waste of God's breath. And God doesn't speak to a lot of you in your dreams because it would be a waste of his time. Because you're not even open to that being God. God normally, now God can crack open a tomb. He can do whatever He wants. But normally, God speaks to us in the ways that we're available to Him. Normally. So for Baptists, they hear from God a lot in the Bible. And for my friend in South Africa, he hears from God in his dreams. Now look, whether you're a Baptist reading the Bible or my friend from South Africa, you can be wrong. Right? Restricting the voice of God to the Bible doesn't guarantee you against getting some kooky idea and drinking red Kool-Aid and dying. You've still got to have mature discernment and insight. In other words, restricting the voice of God to the Bible doesn't eliminate subjectivity from what God is saying. So why are we scared to open ourselves up to other reasons, other avenues? We'll measure it all against the Bible. So, to be a healthy church, we must remember that a church is God's temple in the community where God has placed it. And it is God's temple because God's spirit dwells there. Let's pray.